Well, with that, I invite you to turn your Bible with me to Zechariah chapter 3, if you have a copy of God's Word. If you, if you don't, you're, you can just listen, and uh, you will be uh, blessed, I trust, today. We are studying in Sunday mornings a prophet, a book of the Old Testament, by the name of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah simply means Yahweh, or the Lord, remembers And in this letter, God is reminding his beleaguered and discouraged people who have returned from exile in Babylon that he has not forgotten them and he will not give up on the covenant promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to David, to Israel. And just before I read Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 through 10, I do want to orient you this morning that uh, to the fact that I intend in this sermon to read several passages from the Old Testament um, at length, uh, several verses, and maybe more than I typically do, but I, I believe that God's Word is clear. I understand that there are some things that are maybe more difficult to understand. A part of my job as a pastor and why God Uh, gives pastor teachers to his church is to read and explain but there's enough that's clear that even the reading of his word uh, brings light and we see wonderful things in his law so I just want to orient you this morning that uh, if you have a bible I'll be asking you to turn to a few passages and then if you don't have a bible with you this morning that you'll be hearing Uh, The scripture read in numerous places. Now with that, uh, this is our third sermon on this chapter. This is uh, this third chapter of Zechariah is uh, a fourth vision that God gave to this man. He was a young man at the time of receiving this revelation from God. And he was a young man who had returned with his family from exile in Babylon at the writing of this letter of this uh, book. Uh, of the giving of these visions. Uh, Judah, the kingdom in the south, is really a, a ragtag bunch of people who have returned. Uh, Jerusalem is in ruins. It looks a little bit like, and I say this reverently, it looks a little bit like the pictures of rubble you've seen in Gaza. Um, the, the Babylonians had utterly destroyed Jerusalem uh, at the time of this uh, vision. Uh, The temple of God is in the process of being rebuilt, but all that's been built is the first foundation stones. And frankly, it's uh, for those who saw the first temple, it's the new foundation is not all that impressive. So these are discouraging days. And in these discouraging days, God gives to this young man, this prophet, who's the son of a priest, Zechariah, visions of what God is going to do for his people, not only in the immediate future, but in the last days. So with that, let me read God's word, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Then he, that is the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh. I'm reading, by the way, from the Legacy Standard Version. I'm sorry, I should have said that, which translates the name of the Lord in the Old Testament as it is, Yahweh. He showed me that Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who were standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And the angel of Yahweh testified to Joshua saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep the responsibility given by me, then you will also render justice in my house and also keep my courts. And I will grant you access to walk among these who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have put before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. And behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, every one of you will call for his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are certainly some things here that are striking to we who live here in 2023, uh, who live in New Hampshire. There's some unfamiliar things. We have sung asking us, him asking God, the Spirit, to come and teach us. But as a matter of practice, we just pause and pray before we go any further. Would you join me? God, we do pause once more to address you, to acknowledge you that you are the living God, that our study this morning is no mere academic curiosity. These are ancient words given by your servant Zechariah, to your servant Zechariah, some 2,500 years ago. But they are living and active. And they are every bit as much for we who are gathered here this morning in the name of your son as they were for the original audience who heard the words of Zechariah. And so we ask, as those who are prone to ignorance and pride and foolish thinking, have mercy again, we pray, and show us wonderful things here. Open up our hearts, open up our minds to know you, God, to know Christ, and to have a sight of the wonderful things to come for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Zechariah is perhaps one of the most neglected books in the whole Bible. And part of the reason for that is some of the imagery, as we've just read, a stone with seven eyes, for example, um, a branch, some of these terms, some of the imagery is, is unfamiliar to us. And we are, most of us, not Jews. We, we've not grown up in a synagogue. We're, we've not grown up used to uh, the customs and the law of the Old Testament scriptures. And so for various reasons, 
the book of Zechariah can be challenging to us. But we are taking uh, time at our church at this time to study this portion of God's word. Uh, firstly, because of the clear witness of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is useful. And that includes Zechariah as much as any other book of the Bible. But another reason why I wanted to study this book at this time was for your encouragement. I want you to be encouraged. And that's why God gave these words originally to Zechariah and to his people, for they were very discouraged. And they had reason to be discouraged. As I shared just a few moments ago, the context is this is about 522 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, Zechariah, along with other exiles, have returned from exile in Babylon and other various parts of of what is modern-day Iraq and even some portions of Syria. And they have come as a rather ragtag bunch of people. Um, And they have set about the business of resettling the land. At this time, in particular, the region of Judah surrounding Jerusalem. Very small area. Um, Really, you could think of it as like Merrimack County. We're not talking about a very large or impressive stretch of land. And they've returned. And and many years ago, uh, they had set about the business of starting rebuilding the temple. And and they got to the first layer of the foundation stones, and they had rejoiced. But then discouragements came, opposition came from enemies and so forth. The work on the rebuilding of the temple has come to a grinding halt, and, and people are caught up with the realities of life like you and I are, and life's hard and difficult and discouraging. And, and so God sends two prophets. One's name is Haggai, or some of you call him Haggai. There's also a book in the Old Testament that's named after him. And he was especially given the task of encouraging the people in the work of rebuilding the temple. And the second prophet that God raised up was Zechariah. Now, it's very interesting. How did God cause encouragement to come to his people? Well, he sends to them a series of messages and visions that he relays through Zechariah the prophet, not only about the immediate future, God is revealing that he's going to bless the leaders, which is Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of David. God's going to bless them in Zechariah's generation to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, and that's very good news. But much more than that, God through Zechariah is revealing to his people Israel and Judah that he has not let go of one single little letter of his promises he gave to them to establish them, to bless them, and to cause them to thrive in peace in the land in which he promised them. This is astounding to us. And many today, uh, devout, God-fearing Christian brothers and sisters would say perhaps that, well, no, we should not believe that God's going to fulfill these promises to Israel one day, literally future, in the land. And rather, we should understand that we, the church, are spiritual inheritors. We are Israel. Uh, I read one commentator this week uh, telling us that we should know that we are, we are the land. How about that saying to your wife? Honey, you're dirt. Uh, 
Uh, that wouldn't be good. But that's, no, no, we don't. <laughs> don't guys, don't do that. Um, but we're saying we are the land, we are, we are the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. Ooh, no, the Apostle Paul teaches us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God still has not forgotten his promises. And it will, yes, be only a remnant of Israel in the last days that is renewed, but it will be a remnant not only of individual Jews, but of the nation. And they will return to the land, we of all people, living post-1948, and we now living right in this moment where this tiny little nation the size of Vermont has the grip of the attention of the entire world. We of all people should be taking note that God is mysteriously going to bring about his promises and one day going to restore Israel to the land where Christ will reign for a thousand years, we learn in Revelation, from Jerusalem as king and priest over his people. And then there will be a new earth and a new heaven where that thousand year kingdom is just a preview of what is to come. And you brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, believers, you are by faith in Christ the king, you are brought into, grafted into the people of God. You are part of these nations that God has revealed to Zechariah who will come and you will be called my people. And so we are those who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile. We are part of the people of God. There is a wonderful unity and yet there is a beautiful diversity that as God brings in nations of men and women from every language, every tribe, God still has not forgotten his people Israel. Now, we might tend to think, well, this is a study on what God's going to do. What encouragement does this have to do for me? What practical application does this have for me? That's a fair reason, your fair question. You're coming in this morning, and I know something of your life. I live in the same world you do. I have the same kind of weakness you do. I have many of the same concerns you do, and shortcomings, and faults, and all that, and And we have a hard time just getting through the week. And here I come to church and I'm learning what God has to say about Israel's future. Hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you need any encouragement? Uh, Do you think people in our culture right now are discouraged? Why is it that there's more people right now more depressed and anxious than at any time apparently and previously in our nation's history? Hmm. Give me various reasons. But could it be that even those who profess Christ, that we have neglected portions of the Bible that tell us about the future that we have? You know, one of the ways you can get depressed very quickly and discouraged is if you see the circumstances in your present that are very difficult, very real, very hard, very heartbreaking, And on the other side of those heartbreaking present circumstances, you don't really have a clear idea of any hope. You don't have really any clear idea that things are going to happen differently. Well, this is why God gave portions of his word like this. Because Israel's future, brother and sister in Christ, is because you are part of the people of God is also your future. Oh, yes, there's distinction. I'm not saying if you're Gentile, you're one of the tribes. But I am saying that as a Christian, our hope in Christ Jesus, risen, glorified, coming again, is a hope in a Savior who is risen, who is both gloriously spiritual and even now resurrected in the flesh and is coming to set his feet back down this earth. 
and you want to, believer in Jesus Christ, you want to have a very clear scriptural revelation in your mind, an idea that one day Christ will raise you from the dead with a new body, that you'll no longer have any sin and you will live on a new earth under the lordship of Christ. And as for me, I've said over the years to some of my friends and they don't really understand this, but in this passage, to our passage in verse 10, we're looking at this morning at verses eight through 10, but that reference to this vine and the fig tree, I, I don't know, believer, this morning, can I ask you, do you have any plans to sit under a vine and fig tree? I'm, I'm, you're, I'm joking, but I'm also being dead serious. I do. I absolutely, I mean, that's a picture I have in my mind. And you can scoff, you can ridicule, you can laugh at me all you want. But I'm going to show you this morning, one of the things that I look forward to and one of the things that on a dark day just encourages me is I think about God's promise here and I think, you know, one day's coming when I'm going to be done with my own pride and my own stupid sin. I'm no longer, and I'm of a new body and I'm going to live on a new earth and Jesus is going to be king, no longer, any, no more United Nations, whatever that is. And there's a day coming when I'm going to worship the Lord with his people. That's going to be part of our joy. But there's a day coming when I'm going to walk with my resurrected feet. Either, I don't know if I'll have my own vine fig tree. I hope I do. But I'm going to have some Jewish friends who do. And I'm going to walk up to their house. And they're going to say, come Gabe. And we're going to sit under their vine and fig tree in the shade. And we're going to talk in peace and joy about the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm trying to tell you, but it's in my head. And I, I'm, I'm not kidding you that there are days when I think about that and I can't wait. So with that introduction, I now, we need to come down to, to verses 8 through 10. But what I've tried to do in my introduction is to just try and orient you. This is not just information about some future for merely Israel. That is part of it. And, and we, if we love Jesus, we should love what Jesus loves, right? And Jesus loves these people. We've learned that Israel is the apple of his eye. But we're also learning our future. Because there's only one kingdom of God, not two. And there's only one Lord and Savior, not two. And there's only one people of God, ultimately. And so this is our glorious future. With that, let's come now to verse 8. We're in the middle of this vision. This is a fourth vision in the night that God is giving to Zechariah. And God has shown Zechariah an amazing scene. In fact, one of the most unique scenes in all of Scripture. Unique in this way, Zechariah is given a sight of the very throne room of God. And there he sees a vision of Joshua, the current high priest of Israel and Judah at that time standing before God, and there is Satan standing there to accuse Joshua, who represents Israel, and there is the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh there. So this, this scene where you have God, Joshua, the high priest representing the nation, Satan accusing them of the guilt that they are guilty of, the sin that they're guilty of, and Christ, the angel of the Lord. It's an amazing scene, and, and I, I, I commend to you these verses and the removal of Joshua's sin, that the angel of the Lord Christ, we've learned, is the sin remover. 
He declares, he silences Satan. He declares that he's going to remove the sin of of Israel, of his people in just one day. And we know how he's going to do that. We actually, it was even told of many years prior to Zechariah through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that he would bear their iniquities. So Christ has borne our iniquities on the cross as we sang this morning. So he takes the sin away and then he dresses or robes uh, Joshua representing the people, the nation, and all believers ultimately in the righteousness of Christ. Festal robes. We saw this a few weeks ago. Robes of righteousness that we sang about this morning. And then he promises that God will, uh, the angel, uh, as speaks to a justified, forgiven Joshua, and that representing the remnant of Israel, and in, verses seven, in verse 7, reaffirms that they will have a unique role in leading the worship of God in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and in the future. And we looked at that last Sunday morning. And now, the angel of the Lord, who is none other than Christ, before he became incarnate, this is the God, the Son, the angel of the Lord, and we know that in the passage because this angel of the Lord, this angel of Yahweh, he speaks as though he is the Lord, and he receives, he is to be obeyed as though he is the Lord. So he's distinct from God and yet one with God. This is Christ. And Christ says to Joshua the high priest, standing there, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a wondrous sign. So right there, we're told plainly that Joshua the high priest and his friends, who are they? Uh, Not his buddies. These are likely uh, fellow priests. There was a high priest, but every high priest had other priests uh, in the order of the priests, whether it be the Levites or the sons of Aaron, um, who came alongside and assisted him. So this is a representative of the priesthood of Israel. And, and the angel of the Lord, Christ says, you and your friends are a wondrous sign. Now, what does a sign do? A sign informs. A sign directs. A sign points to something. So just this morning, as I was coming this way uh, from our house, I looked for the sign out here, Reformation Bible Church. And I'm thankful it's kind of large, so I don't just drive by, by the church. And, and we pull in. So a sign Um, Contrary to what some people think, some people think a sign is only mysterious. Uh, The way some people interpret their Bible, you think a sign uh, introduces more confusion than clarity. (laughs) But that's not what's going on here. The angel of the Lord, Christ, obviously is saying, hey, Joshua, you and your friends are a sign. And clearly, God and the angel of the Lord, Christ, thinks that something is being communicated here. And what is being communicated is that in spite of all of their failures, in spite of Israel's failures, in spite of Joshua's failures, in spite of the sin of his people, God's purposes are going to triumph. And not only key in this, key in this passage is the fact that not only does Joshua the high priest represent the nation of Israel, as every priest, high priest did, Their job was to represent the people before God. But Joshua, this high priest, also mysteriously prefigures or points to Israel's and our ultimate high priest who is none other than Jesus Christ. 
So Joshua is a prefiguring of Christ as well. He is for a sign. He is for a sign. The rest of verses 8 through 10 all focus on Christ, the Messiah, who is Jesus. So let's look at this together. What, what are they a sign of? First, number one, Christ the branch will come in glory. That's the first indication. Uh, the sign is communicating. Verse 8 says, For behold, God says, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. So Joshua, the high priest, the fact that he is standing there in the very presence of God, the fact that he, representing the nation, is going to continue. This is an amazing priestly kingly figure is an indication that in the future God is going to send his servant. Now this title servant is a favorite title of God for his uh, son the Messiah and especially in Isaiah. We don't have time this morning to turn at this point but you can look up Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. You can look up Uh, Isaiah 52 verse 13 or Isaiah 53. A favorite title of God for the Messiah or the Christ is my servant. And that's a little confusing to us because we think if he's a servant, doesn't that mean he's not important? (laughs) No, 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 no. In in the empires of that day and age, whether it be in Assyria or Babylon uh, or or among the Persian Empire, to be um, the servant, the servant of the, of the king was to have the authority of the king. It's a little bit like Joseph in Egypt. I mean, Joseph had, was not, he was distinguishable from Pharaoh, but Joseph had all the glory and all the honor and all the obedience of Pharaoh himself. So in the ancient culture, to be the servant of whoever the king was was to have the authority, the dignity, and the reign, and to share it with the king. So this is a messianic title, my servant. And God says, I am going to send my servant. So this is Christ. This is Jesus Christ. And God says, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Now here's where we get a little confused, because we think branch? I mean, that doesn't sound very grand. That's a little confusing. So we're going to take a few minutes here to show you what the significance of the branch. And here's where we're going to read those passages I was referring to earlier. But branch is is another unique messianic title. It speaks of the fact that the promised long-awaited Messiah would come, it would seem unexpectedly. It would seem that out of the, the tree of Israel, which had been cut down so that there's only a, a stump left, as it were, it would be surprising that God would cause just a branch to be the ultimate glorious one who would reign over Israel. You see, you don't need to turn there, but uh, Isaiah 53, verse 2, that beloved chapter, Isaiah 53 Uh, says of the Messiah that he grew up before God like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. In other words, the idea of this branchness speaks of humility. 
It speaks of connectedness with David and the line of David. After all, it's, it's amazing that the line of David is still around. And this Messiah is still connected. So he's a branch that is coming out of the promised line. To, God made a promise to David that he would have a descendant to reign on his throne forever. So it speaks of his connectedness to the Messianic Davidic promise speaks of unexpected and speaks of humility. And there are four branch passages we're going to look at briefly. I'm just going to read them. If you want to turn to Isaiah 4, verse 2, that's the first one. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And again, I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard Version, which may be a little bit different from yours, but I trust you can follow along. There's four... uh, refer references to the branch as Messiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah in Jeremiah and in Zechariah some commentators point out that uh, these four branch passages uh, that if you look at the four gospels it's interesting that the four gospels uh, each emphasize one one aspect of this these branch passages in the Old Testament. Uh, I see that. I, I'm not so sure, so I'm not going there this morning. But these are messianic prophecies, passages, Isaiah 4. So here is Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah is uh, prophesying, I mean, nearly 300 years before Zechariah. 250 to 300 years, just roughly. So look what he says, what God says about the future in that day that's a clear marker anytime you see in that day it's a reference to this glorious future the day when God fulfills all his promises in that day the branch of Yahweh or the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and honor of those of Israel who escape it will be that he who remains in Zion that's Jerusalem the capital city and is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who's written down for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then Yahweh will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her convocation a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, For over all the glory will be a canopy, and there will be a booth to give shade from the heat by day, and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and the rain. Are you awake? I'm asking because you want to take note of this, that if you're a believer, that one day coming, you are going to be raised from the dead, and you are going to be here on earth, and you are going to see your Savior, Jesus Christ, the King, the branch, reigning from Jerusalem and like he was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night for Israel when he brought his people out he is going to be the glory of his people you are not going to be able to say on that day wow I didn't see this coming because you heard this morning from God's word that there's a day coming when Christ in all of his glory is going to be manifest physically bodily gloriously among his people, and Jerusalem will be a safe place. It'll be a wonderful, glorious place, beautiful, 
a place where there'll be shade, a refuge, a hiding place. And there will be a remnant of Israel who, like Joshua the high priest who had his sin removed by the Lord in a moment, they will be there. They will be holy. Wonderful. Second passage is Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Now, I understand we have questions about these prophecies. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push your imagination to, to, to be a little more concrete. Again, God did not give these passages to confuse. He gave them to clarify. He did not give them to leave us with confusion, but to give us encouragement. So what I'm encouraging you to do is as you, as you read things that you can, you can identify with, you can think about, I'm encouraging you to stick to the text and allow your heart to take it in. Uh, before uh, Jeremiah 23, just quickly, I know that one of the things this time of year is the days shorten, and seriously, for some of us, that really gets discouraging. We even talk about it, right? Well, I, there's a term for it. Um, you know, daylight, and we lose daylight, and, and we all get discouraged. I understand. I mean, it's kind of depressing at 5.30, and it's pitch black, and you know, you feel these kind of days, oh, maybe I should just go to bed. Because, <laughs> you, know, you know, if it was summertime, we'd be five o'clock. Oh, let's just go do something, right? So we are not people who are made ultimately for darkness. We were made for light. Well, this should encourage you that there's a day coming when there'll never be a pitch black night again. The light of the glory of Christ will be ours. Well, this second passage, Jeremiah 23. This is a second branch passage. We're looking at passages like Zechariah, that reveal that the branch is the Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. You see that? The connection to the line of David. And he, the branch, will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they will no longer say as Yahweh lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but they will say as Yahweh lives who brought up and brought back the seed of the house of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I had banished them. Then they will live on their own soil. That is not a spirit, that is a spiritual promise, but don't allegorize it don't mysticize it people in Jeremiah's day Israel in the north had already been scattered for over a hundred years well over a hundred years people knew who Israel was people knew who Judah was people knew what the land was and God says you see these people see this land this is what I'm going to do it's glorious and we do see in the modern state of Israel uh, we see evidence of the fulfillment of God's promise it's not the fulfillment yet but isn't it incredible that after nearly 2,000 years in 1948 that Jews from all around the world who gathered in Israel, that they were reconstituted as a nation. As it's been said, uh, this is unprecedented, unprecedented in human history. Just ask yourself, do you know any Canaanites? You know any Amalekites? Uh, no, you, you don't see them reconstituted. 
but here we see Israel. So God, the branch, the Messiah, and notice that, they, that in that day, they will call him the branch, the Messiah, will be called the Lord, our righteousness. How are we saved? Not by our own works, but by the righteousness of Christ. Right? That's what we sang earlier. Third passage is also in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 and 18 through 18. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will establish the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Just note the specificity there. Specificity. Specific. And again, we have so many dear, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, follow the teaching of some to say that the church that we are now somehow Israel and Judah. But I don't ever know what to do with that because I don't know what part of you are Israel and I don't know what part of you are Judah. I yet to figure that out. You're not. I'm not Israel or Judah. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm part of the people of God. But God made a promise to identifiable national references and he says the good word which I've spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah will come about. In those days, verse 15, And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to branch forth, and he shall do justice and righteousness on earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in security, and this is the name by which she will be called, Yahweh, our righteousness. Oh, does that sound familiar? Just like Jeremiah 23. For thus says Yahweh, David shall not have a man cut off from sitting on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall not have a man cut off from before me who is to offer burnt offerings, to offer up grain offerings in smoke, and to perform sacrifices continually. So Jeremiah, again, is, is before the exile. This is, this is like a hundred years previous to Zechariah. And one of the things then that God is doing in these visions to Zachari- for Zechariah in the night is God is coming along to his beleaguered people who see on every side it would appear that God's done with Israel, done with Judah, that God's got to come up with a plan B. No, no, no. God gives these visions to Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh remembers, to say, I have not dropped one single of my promises. It's very bold of God to do that. But is that a problem for God? Uh-uh. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. But notice in both those passages in Jeremiah, the centrality of the branch figure, and it's a clear name for the Messiah who is the righteousness of his people, which again there, and in, in then in the vision here in Zechariah 3 of the angel of the Lord, Christ, removing the sin of Israel, dressing them in the righteousness of Christ, you can see how it's not the first time that idea has been declared by God. And you see in Jeremiah 33 an emphasis on the priesthood. So yes, there will be priests of Israel, Levites in the millennial kingdom, who will be offering up worship to God. We are not to do that because we are not Israel. But God will give the nation in that last days the honor of finally, really for the first time, 
of offering up worship sacrifices not in any way to take away from the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, but the exact opposite, to point to it, to point to it, and to affirm that the problem, listen, with the sacrificial system of old was not the sacrificial system of old that God gave. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the people and a sin just like us. So part of the renewal of the priesthood in the millennial kingdom and some of the sacrifices we learn of in Ezekiel there, part of it is a vindication of God. And sometimes the way we Christians talk, we need to be very careful when we read Leviticus or the Old Testament, we talk sometimes almost as though, oh boy, you know, God tried that way first time. It didn't go so good. So boy, so glad he kind of figured it out and improved things and came up with plan B. That's, that's actually unintentionally a blasphemous thought. For the Lord does not change. He is holy. All his ways are good. His, nothing was wrong with the sacrificial system, which, by the way, was never given to actually save finally. It was always meant to point to Christ. So you see in Jeremiah 33 a restoration of the priesthood, but it all is carried on, um, rather brought about by this branch, the Messiah. Uh, fourthly, sorry, I've messed up my numbering here. Isaiah 4, Jeremiah, yes, 23, Jeremiah 33, one more passage, is in Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 6, another clear branch passage. Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Again, Joshua is uh, in this vision who is the high priest, and and again, he's representative of the people and ultimately of Christ. God says in this vision to Joshua, you will say to him, thus, Zechariah 6, verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man whose name is Branch. So again, Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah's day, was a sign of the ultimate priest to come. But look at this. Behold a man whose name is Branch. He will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Indeed, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will bear the splendor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will come between the two offices. Joshua the high priest in Zechariah's day prefigured, foreshadowed, pointed forward to Jesus, who is both king and priest. And Christ will oversee the rebuilding of the temple in his thousand-year reign on earth. And of course, he's the builder of the church, which is the temple of God. We are also, in very real sense, the temple of God, a house of worship. But he is the branch. So these four passages are very clear that the branch is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So back to our, and some of you are getting nervous because I have three more points. Well, maybe you didn't know that. Now you're nervous. But our first point is that Christ the branch will come. Christ the branch will come in glory. Back to Zechariah 3 verse 8. Joshua and his friends are a sign. And the first sign that they, what are they a sign of? The first is that Christ 
will come, the branch will come in glory. Secondly, and quickly, Christ the stone will establish the holy kingdom of God on earth. Christ the stone will establish the holy kingdom on earth. So there's a branch, verse 8, and then verse 9, there's a stone. And again, if we just read this verse with no background, it's rather confusing. But this title, the stone, is another messianic title. The Messiah in the Old Testament is also referred to frequently as a stone, speaking of strength, speaking of um, weightiness, of power. So, for example, God says in Isaiah 28, verse 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And it is clear in the context, that's not a piece of granite or limestone. That's the Messiah. Or Psalm 118, verse 22, The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's a reference to Christ. So Christ is the stone. No question. And we don't have time, but Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, after describing various kingdoms of the world that come and go, God gives to Daniel, the prophet, a vision of a massive stone that comes and comes on this earth and displaces all other kingdoms. And that stone comes, puts an end to all kingdoms, and it is, a, it is the Messiah, the king, and his kingdom, which will never be destroyed and not be left for another people. So... The stone is another messianic title. So Christ, we're told here in verse 9, the stone, he, that, that has been placed before Joshua, and there you have a, that this angel of the Lord, this messianic figure, is this stone. He is this branch, and he's right there in front of Joshua. And on this stone are seven eyes. Oh, well, you just lost me. We went from stone to seven eyes. Some of you are giving up. You're just saying, oh, I just got to leave that to some systematic theology or no, no, stop, stop, stop. Hold on. You just wait a minute. Don't freak out. All right. Just just read your Bible and it becomes clear. And sometimes you don't have to look that far. You want to know what the eyes are? Just turn over to chapter four, verse 10. Maybe you don't even have to turn over on my Bible. It's on the same page. Uh, God says in Zechariah first chapter four, verse 10. Who has despised this day of small things? As an aside, I love that line. And be careful, believer, that you never look on a church or on what God is doing as a day of small things. You don't want to do that. Never assess what God is doing by what you can see with your eyes. Bad idea. Because God is often doing massive things through through, uh, churches or through people who are insignificant in the world's eyes. So in the day of small things... Um, God says, verse 10, who has despised the day of small things, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, for these are the eyes of Yahweh, which roam to and fro throughout the earth. So the eyes 
God is spirit. God doesn't have physical eyes. The eyes are emblematic, signifying the all-knowing nature of God. He knows all things. And also, it's very interesting, we don't have time to turn there, but Isaiah chapter 11, that the Messiah, who is the shoot that springs from the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11, that he has the spirit of Yahweh. And it's interesting, it's a sevenfold spirit, a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, and so forth. So the idea of the Holy Spirit being uh, the, the Messiah, being full of the Holy Spirit, who knows all things, who sees all things. So the idea here is this stone, this messianic figure, is at one and the same time divinity and he sees all things, and he knows all things. Nothing's going to catch him by surprise or off guard. When he comes in his kingdom, it will be forever, because he will be able to guard it. So here we are. Christ is the stone. He is the one. Uh, He is the stone. He has seven eyes. In other words, he knows all things. But then verse 9, I will engrave an inscription on it. Well, what's the inscription? You ready? I don't know. And sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes in the Bible there are things that are alluded to that are known only to God. Very interesting that even the Lamb of God in Revelation who comes and who is a warrior, he has a name that's written on him that no one knows except him. But in the context, this is my best inclination, God says, I will engrave an inscription on this stone, on this Messiah figure. Well, in the immediate context of the priesthood, remember several weeks ago, those of you who are here, the high priest had on this this, uh, uh, majestic garb, kingly garb of clothing, garments, and he had uh, this regalia, this, this breast piece that had on it these beautiful stones and inscribed on the stones over his heart were the names of Israel the people of God and even inscribed on his shoulders were the names of the tribes of Israel in other words the high priest bore the names of the people of God in love before God and it is seems likely to me that the idea here is that the Messiah has engraved upon him just like the high priest the names of his people we, we, we could look, well, this one passage, just I'll read, Revelation 19, speaking of verse 12, the Messiah of Christ, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and his name is called the Word of God. So this idea of inscribing upon name means identity. In other words, the Messiah identifies with his people and like the priest on the turban had a gold piece upon which was written holy to the Lord. This is the holy Messiah, the holy stone who makes his people holy, has their names on his heart, on his hands, and bears them before God. It's a beautiful picture. I understand it's a little confusing at first a stone with seven eyes inscribed but this is your lord this is your savior this is jesus who is immovable who is strong who will establish a kingdom which will never fade 
two more things we learn here about Christ in this passage quickly and in closing. We've learned about Christ, the branch, that he will come. We've learned that Christ, the stone, that will establish his kingdom of glory. Thirdly, in verse 9 of Zechariah 3, we see that Christ, our king, priest, our priest, will remove Israel and our sin in one day. Verse 9, God says, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. That land, what's that land? It's what Zechariah and all the other people who heard the promises of God to Abraham about the land it's, and to Moses and the people, it's the land. It's that land that the protesters, anti-Semitic protesters, who want every single Jew exterminated from Israel these days, what we're hearing on our college campuses, from the river to the sea, they want that to be for anybody but Jews, anybody but for Israel, it's, it's that land. And um, God made the whole earth, and there's a lot of land on it. But there's one area of land that he has set apart and devoted to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you mark it, he's going to fulfill that. And how do we know that wasn't fulfilled in the days of Solomon? Solomon's kingdom extended because God promised that land forever, and that did not last very long under Solomon, did it? That land. So that land, notice the identification of the people with the land. The land, this, the land itself doesn't have iniquity, but the people of Israel sinned upon that land. The land is so bound up in the promises of God to Israel that here it is said that God removes the iniquity of the land. How does he do that? Jesus, God removes that iniquity. Jesus removes that iniquity the day that he was crucified. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world took away the sins of Israel and its land. That's how he does it. And one day, a remnant of Israel in the last days, we're going to learn in Zechariah, at the end of Zechariah, is going to see Jesus resurrected, the one whom they pierced. They're going to repent, and they're going to be saved, and they're going to be cleansed. Fourthly and finally, verse 10, Christ the King will give us abundant peace. Christ the branch will come in glory. Christ the stone will establish the kingdom of glory. Christ the great priest will remove Israel and our sin in one day, and he has. All that's waiting is the application for Israel. And fourthly and finally, Christ the king will give us abundant peace. That's what this scene under the vine and the fig tree is about. It's a sign of of, uh, of comfort under the blazing Middle Eastern sun. Um, where do you sit to get cool? You sit under your fig tree. Your fig tree provides food for your family. Your fig tree provides shade for your family. Your, your vine provides uh, wine and grape juice for your family, it provides shade for your family, right? And, and here in the millennial kingdom in the future under the kingdom of Christ, you want to count on it. You're going to see Jerusalem rebuilt, gloriously so, a glorious temple. You're going to see God fulfill his promises of the land to his people Israel. And, and there are going to be brothers and sisters in Christ, our Jewish brethren, who are going to sit on the land that was, and live on the land that was guaranteed to their forefathers. And they will no longer be like they are today, 
hated by nearly every nation on earth under the threat like what just happened on October 7th of evil, wicked, demonically inspired men come and slaughtering them in their homes. No, 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 because Christ will be there. They will sit under their own vine and fig tree in peace. And I don't know if I'm going to have one. I, I'm, I'm asking for one. I want a vine tree and a fig tree, and I hope someday you'll sit there with me in the cool breeze of the kingdom of Christ, under the glow of the Shekinah glory of our Lord in Jerusalem, under the thought of, how much time do you want to visit? Oh, I don't know. My schedule's not too busy. We've got uh, eternity future to work on. So let's talk, my friend. Let's talk under the tree. Let's, let's drink some wine together and and enjoy some bread and figs. You say, I don't like figs. I'm not sure I like figs either, but I think I will then. A sign of abundant peace. This was characteristic of Solomon's day. And I have to end with one passage, all right? We end with this. Oh, it is late. Oh. Micah 4, just turn there. Um, and, and I assume that the chairs underneath the fig tree will be more comfortable than the ones you're sitting in. <laughs> Micah 4, verse 3, and with this we'll close. Micah 4. This is a wonderful passage. Speaking of the Messiah, and he, God and Christ, will judge between many peoples, render decisions for mighty nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them tremble, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. Dear believer, discouraged by these evil days with what you see going on in our country and the world, does this true, accurate view of the future for Christ's people encourage you today? I hope it does. Let's pray. God, thank you for how you comfort and encourage your people. May we receive your word in faith. And may in it all, may our adoration for your son, our Lord, increase in his name. Amen.